Good afternoon and good evening to the rest of you. We are back for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. Is I your host, Q, coming to you live from my mother's basement yet again. I'm joined by my co-host, P. How's it going, Yo, P? It's going fantastic. Super excited to be here. Super excited to be talking with Joe. And we are joined by our guest, none other than Joe Carlosari. Joe, how are you doing today, man? I am doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on, guys. We're excited to have you. We're excited to dive into this conversation. Uh, but first, you know, it has been shared on Twitter that everyone can look forward to. What is this now? Part three, or is it part two of the uh, Jay Gold, Joe, Jeff Ross, and uh, Preston Pish experience? How was that conversation when the four of you guys had a chance to sit down and rehash on everything going on in the world? Oh, I love it because, you know, you get into some of these rooms and you kind of have an echo chamber, but we've got four really smart guys. Uh, hopefully I'm included in that group. And I, I just learned so much from all of them. We, uh, we just chat, we debate, we discuss. I think it drops tomorrow. So check out Preston's podcast for that. It's, it's going to be fun. Uh, I really enjoyed recording it. And we run the gamut. We go from economics to personal finance to the regulatory space. And we're all over the place. Uh, so it, it's, good. it's good. It was a good episode. I, I love doing it with Preston and, and crew. Man, I can't imagine a better group of people uh, to just shoot the shit. Oh, yeah, it was fun. It was it was a ton of fun. And it's really interesting to see where we diverge and where we agree. And yeah, I loved it. What was like one surprising opinion that you shared that they were surprised by? I think the big it was more of, we, we've kind of had this back and forth really going, uh, where, where do markets go from here? Um, you know, most people are really talking about how, you know, uh, this is really bad. This is really bearish. The fed's tightening, they're draining liquidity from the system and we're going down and we're going down hard. And I think that's possible. It's, it's, it's probably the likely scenario if you're just, you know, using probabilities at this point. Um, but there is a case to be made that you get a counter trend rally. Um, for many months now, Dr. Jeff Roth, for example, he's been very uh, bearish on risk assets in general. And him and I were sort of the more bullish folks on the group, uh, on, on the chat. We were saying, wait a second, even in the midst of the 2008 crisis, you had these mini you know, bear market rallies where the NASDAQ went up 20, 22%. Um, so the notion that it's down only at this point and we're only gonna tank when it comes to the price, I think that might be a little bit premature. Uh, you know, Dr. Jeff, uh, he was probably the most bullish of the group at this point, saying that it's possible, possible, emphasize on that word, that we could get a new all-time high in Bitcoin in, in August, I think was his target. Um, but really, shit. we had it. Yeah, that's what he said, which is, which is uh, you know, for, for is, Jeff has been pretty bearish, right? That's kind of yeah, a yeah. development. I, I, I gave him so much shit for, for his, his bearish sentiment, but and it hurts me to say this. He was clearly absolutely right. Yeah, no, he was. He, he killed it. And Jay Gould as well. Uh, you know, he was yeah. calling for lower lows. And it's really interesting because, uh, you know, when you're in when you're in markets, when you're in the thick of it, uh, there's so many different cross currents. There's so much different information that you got to sort out. And you always wonder yourself, are we being overly pessimistic? Or are we being overly optimistic? Or, you know, is the base case going to be just a bunch of ranging back and forth where we really don't have any clear signal? And I think there's good arguments to be made for all that. The bears obviously have a fantastic argument right now. The bulls uh, have an argument that everybody's so bearish, right? Like the sentiment's so awful. So we, who hasn't sold at these prices? Um, and then the ranging people, they had their argument like, look, 
you know, we've been ranging effectively between 30 to 60 K for like a year and a half. Now, uh, what makes you think this is going to be any different? Maybe we'll break a little bit lower, but bounce up higher. Um, isn't this really just Bitcoin trying to find its foothold after the craziness that was late 2020 and 2021? I'm curious, like I put a lot of weight on the correlation with the NASDAQ and, uh, the NASDAQ 100 in particular and Bitcoin. It feels like it trades like a tech asset, all the private money managers and private hedge funds don't necessarily have to disclose them buying and selling Bitcoin in the same way a publicly managed fund or a public company would have to do so. So I'm curious if this drawdown and draw up is correlated in your mind with how the stock market's going to be moving or public markets in general. It's definitely correlated with public markets, but if you follow my Twitter field feed, you'll see a strange chart that I tweet out regularly, probably to the annoyance of all the people that follow me. But I actually like to look at Bitcoin against the VIX. Um, I like to look at Bitcoin against volatility because I think that the notion that it's correlated with uh, risk assets is actually a misnomer. It's confusing what the actual causation is. It's volatility. So when volatility picks up in public markets, Bitcoin tends to sell off. And you can look at this chart, chart historically, go back all the way through you know, 2015, 2016, the day, almost to the day Bitcoin peaked in December of 2017, we had a record low on the VIX, which is the volatility index for the S&P 500. So what that's telling you is there's a very sort of complacent, uh, it's a very comfortable market, very little volatility up into the right is the general path. And then when the VIX reverses, uh, the algos and a lot of the bots and the traders, they're selling anything that's perceived as a risk asset. We all know Bitcoin's not a risk asset, right? But right now, the way it trades, unfortunately, with a lot of the institutional money, they sell the high beta, they say that sell the high volatility stuff, which unfortunately uh, includes Bitcoin. The really remarkable thing for me is, uh, uh, is the fact that like Bitcoin in a very, very hostile, negative, volatile environment, it held in there for months now for the first part of 2022. That's really bullish in my mind. It's beginning to trade more like the blue chip NASDAQ stocks as opposed to the more speculative high beta ARC type names. I'm curious then, like, obviously COVID was a big driver as to why the VIX hit levels which almost unprecedented. Right. We still ha haven't even come to 50% of that level. Do you think there's more more room for the VIX to go. And as a result, based on this, more downside than in Bitcoin in the near term, or are you kind of expecting the VIX to cool off and as a result, Bitcoin to sort of have this opportunity to move up? I think that you're going to have elevated volatility for the rest of this year. I think it's going to drive a lot of the traders uh, just really annoyed. They're going to be annoyed by it. But keep in mind, volatility itself doesn't necessarily mean that it's all going down, right? Volatility can mean wild swings to the upside as well. Um, but overall, to get a sustained rally, I think Bitcoin needs a lower VIX. That's generally what we've seen historically. Low periods of volatility have given Bitcoin really good price action. But to your point, like where are we at in volatility? Me, and I've been wrong about this for months, so just you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I think that this is reaching peak fear, peak capitulation. Maybe we have another couple hundred points on the S&P 500 that we shed. Maybe Bitcoin peaks back down, peaks its head back down to 25, 26 again. But you're looking at levels here where I think you're, you're close to a short-term bottom. You know, short-term bottom doesn't mean we can't pop up to, you know, the mid-30s and then sell back off for the rest of the year. Um, but I think you're reaching sort of levels that you consistently sort of see at, at a short-term bottom. Are you, like, what is this moment's factor 
for the most volatility. We've seen everything from the president opening their mouth to sending a tweet to hearing about supply chain issues or just one single boat being stuck in a canal to then causing the VIX to have like a single day spike. Are you expecting the, the markets to be this sort of tense still or and sort of any news goes or is there a certain piece of news that you're expecting to have more of an effect right now on the general markets? So the way I think about it is think about financial markets uh, like your 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 um, uh, basically like a system where your heart is pumping blood, right? And your blood, okay, is the liquidity in the markets. So when credit, uh, when yields rise, when credit becomes more expensive, when you've got telegraph of the central bank pulling liquidity from the system in the form of QT that begins on June first you're draining your blood supply, right? Your blood is not getting everywhere it needs to get in the financial markets. And what you tend to have is increased volatility. So the mere perception of tightening financial conditions is akin to you know, lack of blood supply that can cause a stroke. And I think that's like the, the idea uh, basically at its core of what's going on in financial markets now. The seizing up, the fact that there's a shortage of collateral, Jeff Snyder talks about this all the time, shortage of collateral in the system that uh, you know, promotes lending, the fact that you've got tightening credit conditions, even modestly with the amount of leverage you have in the system, that's gonna cause panic, it's gonna cause heart attacks. And I think that's what you're seeing across the board in a lot of assets. And in particular, the story of the year so far, we always like to talk about stocks and Bitcoin, but the story of the year has been the absolute route in fixed income, the absolute route in the bond market with the bond market selling off at historic levels, something like a four standard deviation move from the norm. That's going to send shockwaves through everything. Uh, Greg Foss talks about this all the time, but the bond market is really where the source of truth is. The stock market's sort of a, a derivative of the bond market, right? All the, the companies that are borrowing and in fixed income, that is going to affect everything up and down the curve. So the so the the notion that the bond the bond market has to stabilize in our system, the credit markets have to stabilize for there to be any sort of stability in the equity markets. How do you find stability in an environment where the Fed is just going to inevitably have to continue to print, print money. How much merit are you giving to like the yield inversions? I know a lot of people talk about them. I know they happened. I know that they then have since both the two and 10 years have since unwound. And I believe we've, we've since corrected. Are you giving any merit to that? Or are you more focused on just the overall credit and whether or not these payments are going to come due? I think the the real signal that you see right now is that something broke in 2021. Um, we see this in the huge, massive euro dollar market, particularly through the euro dollar futures curve, that there is some issue, some dilemma in the euro dollar futures market where you had an inversion, which to me is even a more reliable indicator than the bond market. And that tells you there's a shortage of credit globally, that there's a dollar shortage. A lot of theories what this is, if it could be driven mostly from emerging markets, from China, but we had we have a problem. Our system is fundamentally broken from my standpoint. That's what I, I that's why I'm such a big Bitcoiner, because I think no matter how much stimulus they do, no matter how much easy money policies they try to promote and inject into the system, we still have problems that are manifesting itself in the real economy through the lack of credit creation. And people say, What are you talking about, Joe? There's so much money floating out there, there's so much dollars. 
That's true in a sense. It's true for a lot of consumers who got STEMI checks and were given, you know, uh, PPP loans and all this injections for, through cash. But what we find out increasingly is that the government spending, our, you know, our Congress is spending, and in other countries that did the same thing, that is fleeting. It provides us, you know, a short-term jolt. But you really need the private banks to step in and promote lending and get issue credit. That's the lifeblood of our economy, and they're not doing that. They're actually pulling that back in a lot of respects. And unless you're an extremely creditworthy borrower, you don't have access to capital, which is causing all of these problems. And no matter what the policymakers do, they're sort of pushing against the tide that they can't control. So to me, the real crux of your question here is I don't think we're generating credit, credit at a fast enough clip to let people to sustain the high levels of leverage and debt in the system. I'm curious what your thoughts of something like potentially paying off student loans would have on this credit market at large right now, with that being one of the biggest bills due for the U.S. government? Yeah. I mean, I, I, first of all, I'm a strong believer that's going to happen. I think it's just a matter of when and, and how long it takes before they can get consensus around something. But so I see you celebrating. It. I, no. I, full disclosure, I have student loan debt that Papa Biden, you promised me you need to pay that off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people do a lot of younger people do. And, uh, you know, it's the type of thing where, uh, okay, you remember when you forgive someone's debt, uh, that debt is, you know, something you're really upset about, but it's also someone else's asset, right? So that again, when you extinguish that, or depending on how they, they actually construct it, that's going to be a cash drain for a lot of private actors who are holding that paper. Um, so there's always, you know, there's always an unintended side effect when you do these things. And yes, it may be short-term bullish for a lot of things that we care about, Bitcoin, other risk assets. But again, this is a drain on the system. This is something that I think in the long run is going to cause a lot of problems for us. You cannot solve debt over indebtedness with more debt. It's fundamentally incompatible. So you have two options at that point. You either debase everything. Uh, you know, you go the Luna route where you just print a bunch of more assets and try to debase, or you engage in austerity. And I don't think we're ready for austerity as a society. I think people just would not have it. You'd have riots in the streets. So the reason I'm so pro Bitcoin, sorry, Pete, but let me just close the thought. Yeah, the reason I'm so pro, so pro Bitcoin is because I don't care about the short term. I know it sucks to see Bitcoin at, you know, uh, what is it? 29,000, somewhere thereabouts. It sucks, right? Everybody's disappointed, but in the long run, I think policymakers are going to come back and they're going to push so much liquidity and so much cash and so much spending into the system that Bitcoin will be the biggest beneficiary of all that. Well said. I, I was just going to jump in and say, you know, the lunatic stuff is <clears throat> insane, ridiculous, <laughs> hilarious. But also I was just going to comment on, uh, you know, the, the US dollar is another one of those things where we're just printing our way out of it, or they're trying to print their way out of it. Yeah, I, I hope I hope they do. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm kind of uh, American Hoddle uses this term, and I'll steal it from him. I'm an accelerationist. Like I, I hope these things. I hope they try the wackiest, craziest um, policies possible to keep the House of Cards uh, in play. I hope they bring on UBI. I hope they forgive all the student debt. I hope they you know start you know rewarding people to buy houses and in, in 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 terms of additional stim stimulus and. I hope they go all this hardcore as fast as possible, because at the end of the day, I think it's unsustainable. And I'd rather them push, push on that as hard as possible to move us closer to something, because I think people will wake up. One of the cool things out of COVID was that I think when you saw all this intervention from the Fed, a bunch of people woke up. 
a bunch of people came to Bitcoin and said, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense, guys. We know deep in our bones that this is just a flawed system and we have to figure out a way to push against it to keep it afloat. And people are saying, uh-uh, I'm out of this. I'm, I'm opting out of this system. I'm going for something that's, that's hard and something that I can trust and that's Bitcoin. You, you hit on exactly what I was going on a rant about over the weekend where like, yes, would it benefit me selfishly as someone who owns student loans to have it be paid off? Absolutely. Would it also probably shake up the system to rejigger it in a way where you take this money out of the expectations or the inflow that you should have essentially had? And then all of a sudden you further exacerbate the issue that we've been seeing with the money printing. It also is a net positive for Bitcoin. So this is sort of my call to say every single Bitcoiner should actually be and have this perspective that Joe is sharing. We're like, let them fucking print themselves to death. Every dollar they print is a dollar closer to the inevitable downward spiral of our credit system that we have and the necessity to rebirth it with something new. Yeah. So, and the other, the other part about it is think about the alternative, right? If they actually were serious and they're going to go and drive, uh, drive the car into the building, which is effectively what they do when they try to hike and, and do quantitative tightening and, and drain liquidity from the system. When they try to tighten financial conditions, you can kill everything, right? You can take down Bitcoin. Um, I, I don't want that. I mean, the, the, I feel like there are some people in Bitcoin circles who are like, well, we need them to hike. We need them to, to tighten. We need them to do all this stuff to stop inflation. I think that's BS. I think that they should actually be pushing it forward and bringing about an end to a system that is, uh, in my view, unsustainable. I, I want to also talk about the other side of the coin, though, not just, you know, money coming in, but money going out. It's all, you know, my dad always used to say, it's not about how much money you make, it's about how you spend the money you have. Uh, and it's costing a lot more every single day to just operate in this country. They're sort of spinning the numbers around, giving us a very interesting inflation number. Uh, I'd love to just unpack all of that with you if you're open to it and just your thoughts broadly on what we're seeing inflation and maybe what commodities you're paying close attention to. Yeah, I mean, you have to be asleep in, uh, under a rock to not notice that everything that it costs to live a decent life is getting more expensive and harder. Um, you know, I, I think the CPI is, you know, it's, it's interesting because... Bitcoiners for many years talk about how CPI is a flawed metric, but then when CPI starts popping off in real high numbers, we say, that's it, there it is. Now we believe it's a, a good metric. It's, it's flawed. It doesn't show you a picture of what it costs, costs to live, right? Um, what really costs are the services, education, uh, healthcare, things that are basic, essential um, uh, things you need for essential living. Th those are telling you the real message because they're up, you know, 1,400, 1,500, 1,600% in the last 10 years. Uh, the fact that your groceries are up 8% sucks. The fact that your energy is up similarly high percent is also really bad, right? Your gas prices are, are overwhelming. But uh, I think that people are missing the big message, which is that those core services that you need to live, you know, your healthcare, education, um, those things are sort of, sort of through the roof. Uh, you know, from my standpoint, I think it's going to get worse in terms of a lot of the short-term inflationary pressures. I don't think they're going to resolve. I don't care what the Fed does. Um, you're not going to get more oil. You're not going to get more food. There's real supply shortages in a broken economy globally that you're just not going to be over, able to overcome in the short term. So people ask, well, wait a second, Joe, if you're such a big Bitcoin bull and you bought Bitcoin and it was 50% higher, isn't that much worse than people that uh, you know, just have to pay 8% more at the pump or 8% more for food. And I would say in the short run, you're absolutely right. It sucks to have this price movement, but Bitcoin is not really protection against CPI. 
I always like to say it's protection against long-term debasement, long-term degradation of your currency, which goes in, in spurts, right? It's not always uh, you know, a day-to-day, month-to-month thing you can track. So you need to secure your, your future through long-term debasement with something like Bitcoin, a hard asset. In the short run, it's not going to bear out in terms of the price, right? You, you, there are days where you're going to take a real hit on whatever you paid for Bitcoin is. And that's just the reality. That's the growing pains of a very small asset. And for us that are you know, early adopters, we have to be used to that volatility. It's just, it just comes with the territory, but, but zoom out, as they say. I love that explanation. I, I like wrote it down. I'm like, go back, like clip that. That's, that's the clip for later. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm curious then, you know, we see them tell us this inflation number. We see them also spin the inflation number around to make it look like whatever they want to pay attention to. Um, are there maybe like one or two commodities in particular that you're really paying attention to that maybe have or carry a bigger weight on just everything's impact in your opinion? I mean, the core lifeblood of the economy is oil, right? You have to look at oil. Um, Notably though, and and again, this may trigger some folks, but if you take oil in its real terms, adjusted for inflation, we're nowhere near the 2008 hike, you know, the 2008, 2008 peak of oil, right? We're still lower than that. And, you know, this is why a lot of us say, um, you know, I call it the Bitcoin deflationist. Like my biggest fear uh, is really hard down, hard deflation of all assets rather than the inflation. Inflation is extremely painful, and I don't want to diminish it for everybody that is, you know, struggling through higher prices for everything. But in reality, that's that's due to a lot of things that is that are not directly uh, akin to what the Fed or Congress is doing. Um, those are sort of you know momentary disruptions because of the fact we destroyed our supply chains and then we we did a ton of stimulus money, which created a huge supply demand imbalance. In the long run, though, things are really cheap. I mean, commodities are extremely cheap from a historical perspective. Bitcoin, though, is a hedge against that debasement, okay? Even though your commodities may get cheap or more expensive in the short run, again, the real key thing you need to focus on is how they are de- destroying the value of your currency, your native currency, U.S. dollars. That, that or in other countries, they're doing it even more. They're, they're further along in this process than the United States. So that's the key thing to focus on. Do you think that one thing I think is interesting is I think most Bitcoiners would argue that commodities are, are more expensive than they ever have been. Where do you think that discrepancy comes from? You know, I think it's because in their whole lives, they've never had to deal with really high inflation. I mean, most, you know, the Fed was confounded, right? For like 10 years, you can actually go read their minutes. Um, They were doing massive amounts of QE1, QE2, QE3. And they just said, we can't generate inflation. We can't figure out why there's no inflation in the real economy. What's going on here? And then they finally figured it out. They figured out to generate inflation, you can't just print a bunch of bank reserves and give it to the banks. You have to hand it to the people that will spend it very rapidly. And that's what happened with COVID, right? You had an entire economy disrupted because of the lockdowns. And at the same time, you gave everybody a bunch of cash. You don't think there's going to be a scarcity of goods that's going to cause short-term inflation? And, and they're right, Pete, like they're, they're, you are paying more for most people. You know, if you're in your, your late 20s and 30s, you've never seen anything like this. Um, never seen any kind of you know uh, rise of CPI um, like what we're seeing right now. So you're right in their, your lifetime, you've never seen anything about this. But the key thing is, what is the trend? The trend continues to be that unless you're giving direct stimulus to the people who will spend it, policymakers can't generate inflation. 
Japan, until they started doing massive amounts of direct stimulus to people, they through hundreds of rounds of QE over the last 20 years, they couldn't generate long-term inflation. What does that tell you? It tells you that people spending money is what actually causes inflation. Interesting. So you're, you're not saying that, there, that inflation is overstated. No. You're saying, okay, got it. I misunderstood. Yeah. No, I'm not saying it's overstated. What, I, what I'm saying is look at what's causing it. And what's causing it is got direct it. money in the hands of people who will spend it. That's the thing. Bank reserves do not do that. In fact, when they made the I system see, yeah. flush with cash, uh, they put a ton of QE in there. Uh, the banks decided, well, we're not going to lend unless it's to Apple or to Tesla or to extremely credit worthy things that we're, we're going to hoard this cash. We're yeah, just wasn't there like in, in, uh, like in the depths of the COVID, uh, you know, potential financial crisis, <laughs> weren't they like shoveling money to all the banks? The banks were like, oh, we saw what happened in 2008. Like we are not going to play fast and loose. And they had to be like, no, trust us. It'll be good. Yeah, there's a there's a there's great charts out there, one of which is the loan to deposit ratio. And you see like the actual loans relative to the deposits that they're holding are at an all time low. It's like a 40 year low. The other one you can look at that I think tells a lot of signal is the velocity of money chart. Look at where velocity of money that that velocity of money is the dollars circulating in real time in the economy, right? Like, again, like that uh, circulatory system, like your blood system. You see it at an all-time, or at least I think it's a 40-year low velocity of money. That just tells you that the money is getting trapped in things that don't actually circulate into the real economy. The analogy I always use is like, imagine you print a trillion dollars and you bury it in the desert, okay? That money buried in the desert isn't actually going to drive up inflation. What would drive up inflation is you're handing it out to people in droves and they're buying up all hard assets and goods. So why don't you think, so why are we starting to see that right now? Or let's say over the last, you know, two or three quarters, like what, what has changed? Cause they were, we've been doing helicopter money for a while now. What, what new systems have been in place that have uh, driven the perceived or CPI measured inflation increasing? Yeah. I think one of the reasons was that a bunch of people were hoarding cash during 2020. Um, they were nervous about the economy. They were staying home. They didn't know if they'd have a job. Right. And then 2021, you kind of had this, ah, it's back to normal. We don't need to fear COVID like it's going to sack the entire economy. Uh, so they started spending. So a lot of deferred spending from 2020 got into the market in 2021. That's when we started seeing these elevated CPI prints. At the same time, they were pushing forward yet another bout of stimulus. The Fed was trying to do what it could to support real estate, which real estate makes up a huge chunk of the, the US economy. So they were doing MBS purchases that were helping real estate boom. And that was causing a lot of uh, additional um, you know, short-term growth. So you had this perfect cocktail, really. Uh, also, the hangover from the supply chains being closed, um, you know, they, they didn't resolve overnight. They were things that you know, are going to take years to unwind the damage that was done during 2020 with some of the lockdowns. All these things made for a perfect cocktail that really is going to push CPI up in the short term. I also think there's, a, there's an issue with the oil companies because the oil companies many times now have learned a lesson that they're not going to get overextended. They're not going to do too much drilling, uh, particularly given the policies that the, uh, the Biden administration has advanced. They're, they're not going to get over their skis. They're not going to face bankruptcies like they did you know, in 2014, 2015, they just said, we're just going to withhold supply. We're just going to keep producing the same amount we did and we'll let the prices elevate. And that's going to be enough for us to make a profit. So you've got a lot of different dynamics and cross currents in play. The key takeaway though, is that there was, there was real damage that was caused by 2020 and it will be felt for years. I'm curious to like how much, like I, I fully buy into what you're saying about inflation being driven by 
you know, people spending supply and demand. If people want to spend the money and, and businesses want to market a, a used car for more than ever, and people are willing to shell over the money to make it, the market is now dictated that that's the going rate. Ergo, inflation now to come. I'm curious though, where where do you fall in line then to the deflationary aspect, or are we just sort of expecting this is going to be the price of most goods from here on out? The way kind of like gas in Europe was what we see now, and then gas in Europe is now exponentially risen. People are saying like this is sort of where gas will live as a byproduct, of like what Europe has had for the last decade or so. Yeah. So when I talk about deflation, I think that the majority of folks, us included, I think on the call, um, we have our money stored up in risk assets, right? And we've been, we've had uh, anybody in, who's following risk assets know you've kind of had a deflationary event for the last you know quarter or two where prices have tanked. Now, what we know, the Fed emphasizes something called the wealth effect, which is just a fancy way of saying that people tend to spend more and do more and feel more comfortable when asset prices are rising. It's a documented phenomenon uh, in the economic journals, and I think the Fed believes it. They believe that they need to do what they need to do to support asset prices so people keep consuming because that drives the economy forward. So if you have a deleveraging, if you have a deflationary event for risk assets, Bitcoin, stocks, bonds, et cetera, if they all crash down, what are people going to do? Are they going to spend more or are they going to tighten their belt? Uh, I think the data is pretty strongly, uh, strongly shows and it's convincing that people are going to tighten their belt and they're not going to spend as much. Now, to your point, there are certain commodities that you don't have a choice. Right, you have to buy gasoline to get to your job. You have to buy certain things to succeed and survive, um, but you don't have to buy all the things. So you can easily see an environment, and this is kind of the idea behind stagflation, uh, where where real growth is declining, right, or or tepid growth, but at the same time you have high prices in certain select commodities, one of which is oil, and that makes that that um, creates a real drag on the economy. So. Um, well, CPI and inflation, it's kind of a, it's a distraction in my, my view, because the real focus is on the wealth effect and people's wealth when it's destroyed, stop spending as they would if it weren't destroyed, right? So the system needs the wealth effect to survive. Otherwise, you have a massive deleveraging. And I think that will uh, be unsustainable at a certain point. I don't want to be like too speculative with this. So you're allowed to tell me to go F myself, but um, where... What is sort of an expectation you're having as far as what the next round of quantitative easing can be? I saw some conversations going around Twitter of just sort of, will this round be bigger than the last and by how much? Curious your thoughts there. Yeah. So generally, the short answer is nobody knows. Nobody has a clue. And uh, what, I, what I will say is this. Um, one of the things you can take away from March of 2020 is that when the sky is falling, you don't really know how much it's going to take to get it back up, right? And that's kind of the position that I think a lot of policymakers do. They have sort of a shock and awe monetary policy. And same thing from the stimulus side with the, uh, the fiscal authorities with the Congress. They don't know how much, how many checks, how many semi checks does it take? Is it one? Is it two? Is it 12? Is it every month for a certain demographic? Um, to me, I think that when they get really scared, they're going to at least, at least come back with double what they did last time. That's a bare minimum. That's sort of a floor. And then the question becomes, is that enough to reinstill confidence? Is that enough to keep the confidence game uh, uh, rolling? And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. If it isn't, and you still see markets selling off, they'll probably double that and double that and do it in an exponentially increasing fashion. So 
Um, you know, if you have a, you have a fed balance sheet, uh, where, you know, where it's at, you could easily see that doubled or tripled, you know, into the next round where we have a deleveraging event. Um, now to me, I think that's, it's kind of, it's interesting as a thought experiment to think about how big it could get, how, how massive it can get, but realistically, you know, for the average person, you need to understand that in that environment, what you want to hold is something fixed and hard like Bitcoin. Uh, you're, you're not going to want to hold something that can be debased or confiscated, um, you know, for stocks. Okay. Even if stocks don't completely crash, which I don't expect them to entirely crash. I think at a certain point you see the feds stepping in and buying SPY, buying, you know, major equity ETFs, just like they bought major bond ETFs. Um, once they do that, you create a perverted market. And the thing about Bitcoin is I don't expect them to be buying Bitcoin anytime soon, which is going to let us be like the last bastion of freedom and last bastion of an uncorrupted market into the next, uh, into the next downturn. Wait, when do you think that might actually happen? Like Bank of Japan style, just being like, oh yeah, we're just buying the SPY. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think I need a date, Joe. I need a yeah. date and a time. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting uh, to think of it from what would cause them to do that. And I think what would cause them to do that would be a hard down where you've got baby boomers who have the majority of their money wrapped up in the stock market and stocks cannot rebound. No matter what type of stimulus and QE they're doing, stocks don't rebound. And in that dynamic, they say, well, wait a second, we can't let cities and pensions and uh, all these different uh, you know, uh, entities that rely on a stock market always going up and to the right, we can't let them go under. So for the, for the good of the country, for the good of national security, we have to provide a bid. Um, they have not done that yet. I know some people in conspiracy theories think that there's the plunge protection team that already goes in and does this already. I can assure you from my research, I've never found any evidence of that. I think that the more likely scenario is that you have that sort of hard down where you can't get assets to reinflate and they, they come in at that point. But whether that's this cycle or next cycle or the cycle after that, it will be something that happens in our lifetimes. 100%. I, I completely agree. There is no way that the Fed will um, put the ongoing and future success of America ahead of the, uh, the wrath of boomers. Yeah, but keep in mind, you know, the Central Bank of Japan, once they did that, the, uh, the Nikkei didn't make a new high for, for decades, you know, just because there's a bid there that prevents the free fall crash doesn't mean that people are going to be comfortable in that dynamic. And there's a real reason for that, right? Once you have the Fed holding a bunch of equities and deciding when they're going to sell or when they're going to buy, your confidence in that market is undermined. And invest, okay. foreign investors are not going to want to put capital there. It's just absolutely not. Become, it it's not a real market anymore. Basically, exactly. it's a fixed price good. And you, you know, there, there is no market. Right. Joe, I'm curious to also just sort of, again, this is speculative. If you had this crystal ball, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You'd be on your <laughs> island not being bothered. But what, where are your expectations on when this QE gets injected by the Fed? Are you looking at sort of a percentage or a certain number for the NASDAQ or S&P 500 to hit? Are you expecting something else to sort of happen? Uh, maybe on a more social level, the way we kind of saw COVID, uh, where or what is your expectation on that front? You, you are I, always I, trying to trade those numbers. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll dude, tell you dude, this. Let me have my insider trading advantage, P. Like, come on. Just buy Bitcoin, bro. <laughs> I'll tell you this. Um, my view is that the signal is going to come from the bond market, not the stock market. If you see 
spreads blow out, you see LQD and junk bonds uh, uh, really taking a hit. Um, and you see, for example, um, a 10-year above, well above 3.5, 3.6%. Uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that they're coming in pretty quickly with a pivot. That's, that's my view. People disagree with me on that. But I think that's really the key. If you see, because I mean, here's the facts. According to Druck and, Stan Druckenmiller, um, famous investor, he was saying that if you're, as you're approaching 4% on the 10-year, you're going to be chewing up, uh, I think he said, a third of the budget into paying interest on the debt. That's his calculation, not mine. But you just get an idea that this, it just becomes unsustainable for the Congress to service that debt. And that causes all sorts of havoc in the equity market. So really, you know, the yields on the 10-year are your signal. Focus on where, where interest rates are going to be. And if they get to a certain point, you can expect them to intervene. But now I'm curious because that, that makes total sense. And yet we also, I, I brought this up earlier and now I'm genuinely curious, like what about like if a two-year or a three-year bond all of a sudden creeps up somehow to like 325 to 3.5%? is that also maybe an even more jarring situation because it's shorter term and those payments are higher as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yields in general give you this signal. Um, and also to the opposite, yields in general sniff out once the Fed is, is going to get ready to call uncle. Um, go back to 2018, right? The equity market was in free fall pretty much until Christmas Eve, but the 10-year yields peaked out um, in early October. Um, we actually hit, we, we wicked up above, I think, 3.25, and then yields continue to decline all the way up until when Powell signal is pivot. And then they continue to decline for most of 2019 to where they hit the, the COVID bottom uh, in March of 2020. So the bond market's really savvy. In, in many ways, I think bond market traders are much better than equity market traders. Um, they're not as uh, distracted by the colorful objects and they don't get as jittery. They really provide a ton of signal. That's, that's the whole point of why the yield curve is so important because it's a signal in real time from, uh, from major institutions that are buying these highly liquid uh, securities, they're uh, highly liquid bonds, they're buying this collateral for the purpose of trying to hedge and put on good trades. And I think it's a very deep, sophisticated market and you should never, never ignore their signal. Why would the Fed be aggressively raising rates right now, knowing that they sort of have this backstop up ahead? Or is this something that, you know, someone like Stanley Drunken Miller, who has amassed a, an incredible fortune and probably knows the markets better than everyone, including Jerome Powell and everyone he talks to, is that maybe more his analysis versus like the Fed actually has those numbers in front of them to like make that type of a calculation? Yeah, great question. So the, the view is this, the Fed's decision to hike and to taper and to begin rolling off its balance sheet as of June 1 is driven by one thing and one thing alone, politics. Ultimately, this is a, this is a decision to hike because so many people are literally screaming at the Biden and the Biden administration that they need to do something about inflation. They need to do something to confront the fact that I'm paying these ridiculous gas prices, this ridiculous food prices. They should have acted earlier. And in Washington, everything's about the blame game, right? And if the Biden administration, which they did in the State of the Union, uh, literally referenced the Federal Reserve, they referenced the fact that the Fed had to step in and do something about inflation, the Fed says, okay, we're going to hike. And their idea, and this is really critical, 
Their idea is we can destroy enough demand. We can engage in what's called demand destruction that consumers will actually stop spending and that will act as a break on inflation. It's a theory. And again, it's one that will likely not work in my opinion. The reason is because no matter how many hikes you do, no matter how much QT you do, you're not gonna get more oil out of the ground. You're not gonna resolve the agriculture shortage that's globally. There's nothing they can do other than try to tamper expectations and influence consumer behavior. It's almost like a, you know, a, a giant psychological operation that they're trying to run on the American public to convince them that because they're being hawkish on inflation, that they're doing something and they're out there on the front and they're trying to, I mean, look at that last speech from Jerome Powell. He, he went out after the FOMC meeting and he basically did his, uh, as Jeff Snyder says, his best Bill Clinton impression. And he said, you know, I feel your pain, American public about, about the inflation. I'm doing something we're acting, but guys, nothing you're going to do short of destroying financial markets is going to stop high CPI at this system at this point, because you've got a broken supply chain and you've got not enough commodities out there to meet the demand. Yeah. It's all just noise. It's all it is just noise. It, it, it's, it's a giant noise. It's a giant site. Like they're, they're trying to do their best thing, which is jawbone and influence expectations. That's the, their best tool at this point is convince people that they matter. Yep. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I know I have on this a lot, but you know, as Charlie Munger, uh, decrepit old man likes to say, you know, you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. And yeah. everyone in this system is incentivized to just keep the party rolling. You have to ask yourself, when did the pot, when did the, 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 the Powell tightening pivot start, right? It started last fall when he was up for renomination in front of Biden. And we know through many reporters who have looked at this, that Biden says, you have to have my back on inflation. You have to do something. In fact, through most of the summer last year in 2021, Powell came out and he said, inflation's transitory. It's going to go away. Don't worry about it. Right. When did he pivot and say, nope, it's no longer transitory right when he was getting uh, interviewed for another term as Fed chair, and he wanted another term. So he had to go out there and he has to sell this line to people that he has some ability to influence something which he cannot influence. It's, it's again, it's just theater. I feel like it's like when um, in my, my fantasy of like back in the day and like, you know, tribal, whatever communities, like small groups of proto humans. And there'd be like the witch doctor who would be like, yes, if you give me this thing, I will do my dance and the rains will come. And they'd be like, well, why haven't the rains come? And they'd just be like, well, you didn't give me enough of the thing or uh, some other random reason. And the reality is, it's nothing to do with what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at the movement you've seen in bonds. We talked about how it's a total route that people have sold off bonds because it's all based on expectations. It's all based on the fact that they went out there and said, we're going to hike 15, 16, 17 times. So the market gets way ahead of them. The market actually front runs them. They sell off those bonds, yield skyrocket. And right now, if you look at where the 10 years at and where the two years at, they're actually ahead of where they think the fed funds is going to be by, by the end of the year. I mean, literally it's all about expectations. That's the whole game. And your thesis or part of it is that the bond market is much more, uh, what's the right word, not informed, but much more um, astute and understands these nuances more than, you know, the Robin Hood crowd. And obviously we're talking about the, the it's much bigger than the Robin Hood crowd, obviously. Oh, but. yeah. Yeah. It's very sophisticated. And I think they can read the tea leaves. And I also they also know the breaking points, right? Mm -hmm. They know the, they, uh, my view is succinctly, that the bond market tells the Fed what to do, not the other way around. The bond market mm. will force the Fed's hand at a certain point. Do you think the Fed is aware of that? Do you think this is oh. like during the 
for sure. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, it's almost like the block size wars, you know, where the miners were like, "We control the network," and then it was like, "Oh, do you though?" But no, you're saying yeah. everybody knows what the what the state of play is. Yeah, uh, there's a great quote by um, a political strategist, the raging Cajun J- uh, James Carville from the Clinton era, where he <laughs> yeah, says he that uh, yeah, if he could come back to life, he'd want to come back as the bond market because they can scare anybody. Like literally, that's that's his quote, and he's he's right, he's dead on. Yeah, um, bond market can scare presidents. The bond market can scare the Fed chair. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> um, I want to present a question to everyone here. Uh, it's my favorite little figure or number or stat or whatever you want to call it to pull up on people who want to dunk on the fact that Bitcoin is more than 50% off of all-time highs. Uh, And it's that the last time the NASDAQ was trading at these current levels was November of 2020 when Bitcoin was worth $14,000 a coin. So we're over 100% above that level Sounds to me like Bitcoin's a better store of value than the public markets, but I don't know. I just read charts. Um, I'd love maybe Joe and P your commentary on just like this idea that you can look at the charts, you can look at the numbers and see, even in the short term, Bitcoin is holding better value than other things that we have stored our wealth in. Oh yeah, I mean, look at look look at even blue chip names that every you know everybody who has a retirement account had exposure to Netflix, right? Like it was a basic component of the S&P 500. Look what happened to that stock. Absolutely crushed. Does that mean that stocks don't, you know, act effectively in our society for the boomers as money? Of course they do. That's where they put their money, right? So the notion that, you know, we, again, I think people confuse different things. They confuse different concepts. Can Bitcoin sell off extremely hard? Is it, is it extremely volatile? Yes. Okay. But Bitcoin has attributes that make it the strongest store of value that the mankind has ever known. And many of them are not just even the price, right? The unconfiscatable nature of it, the, the infinite scarcity of Bitcoin, the fact that it's hard written into the code that you cannot change these rules. These things in my mind are way more important. Really, they are more important than the short-term volatility of the price. That's why people could put their life savings in it because they can go to bed at night knowing that no matter who steps up to the plate, no matter what nation state says they're going to do X, Y, Z, new political policy, I have confidence that one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And you know the short-term fixation on what the USD value of Bitcoin is, is going to distract you. It's going to confuse you. And ultimately, it's going to cause you to part ways with your Bitcoin. So to your point, like I think, yes, it sucks. And I don't mean to diminish it at all. If you, you're sitting on a big loss, if you bought Bitcoin above 50 or 60,000, I've been there. We've all been there if you've been in the space long enough. But zoom out, notice that the, the, the marginal daily price of Bitcoin is not the real signal. What is signal is the network and its growth and adoption. That's what you have to focus on and its attributes that make it different from everything else out there. Well said. I would argue and say that Despite that, like I do buy into this idea that, you know, we're watching hash rate enter new all-time highs and difficulty enter new all-time highs. But historically speaking, it doesn't feel like Bitcoin really cares about those things. Bitcoin's number moves sort of in rhythm with a general market sentiment. So how or what is maybe impacting that versus what should be, which is all of these network effects and proving that, you know, we're seeing an increase in wallets or whatever other metrics that we want to use to show that. I think that the fundamentals of Bitcoin have never been stronger. And you're, if you, if they've never been stronger, why doesn't the price reflect that? 
And to answer that, you got to get into a lot a real complicated discussion about leverage in the system and credit in the system. You have to get an, an understanding of how an order book works and how in the day-to-day -day price of Bitcoin, it's set by the marginal buyers and the marginal sellers. The guys who set a bid or put an ask and they literally can move the market in different ways. That's what causes short-term fluctuations in Bitcoin. Okay. And by the way, we all know it can fluctuate wildly within a single month just because the traders decide that this indicator says it's bullish or they think the real economy is going to run up. So we're going to buy it or sell it vice versa. You, you, that does not provide any signal. And, and people really confuse that the signal is all the things you're talking about, the real fundamentals of it that tell you this isn't going away. So again, like, you know, why isn't, why aren't the fundamentals showing the, the long, uh, why aren't the, the, why isn't the price reflecting the long-term fundamentals? And the answer is because in the short term, uh, the fundamentals really don't matter for the price. What matters is do traders think that this thing is going to go down or up in the short run? And that's a, it, it gets confusing, but you have to really separate that out from your mindset. P, what are your thoughts just broadly on network effect impacting price? And then as well, the question I asked before. Can you restate the question? I wasn't paying attention. I'm sorry. It's fine because I don't remember the first question either. Well, no, but I mean, there's a thing that occurred to me. Well, first of all, I just want to take a sip from my, my liquid sustenance, just some gin. Um, one thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about is just when events like this Lunaterra uh, meltdown happen, I lose faith in people's ability to actually understand the value of Bitcoin. And I find myself wondering whether, I agree with everything you said, Joe, um, as always, but, or as usual, I should say, um, I don't know what it will take for the American people, at least. I think in a lot of other countries, people already understand the importance of sound money, but I don't know what it will take for people to actually truly value Bitcoin as it should be valued because everybody is, is so high time preference and so greedy. It's, it's only in those environments that I feel like things like this Lunaterra explosion which, you know, I get to sit on the sidelines and be like, man, this is wild. And it played out as I expected it to, obviously not the specifics, but just in general, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think has to happen before um, the average American is like, man, this shit is fucked. So uh, this is going to be depressing. So I forgive, forgive me for this, but uh, I, I honestly think the vast majority of people uh, as they, they have for the last 10 years are really missing how important Bitcoin is and they will continue to miss how, how important Bitcoin is. I think that the future for Bitcoin, at least for the next five to 10 years is going to be a small select group of people that take the time to understand it and really high net worth individuals who are nervous about the policies that are going to come from uh, central authorities, from policymakers, from central bankers, from regulators, they're going to get nervous. They're going to get under, they're going to continue to understand that the only way to keep the system afloat, the only way to keep it stable, the current legacy system is to have more and more control, to grab a hold of it, to try to intervene, to put in place these different policies. And at the same time, they're going to say, wait a second, there's something really wrong here. We need to look at something alternative and we need to get increasingly exposed to this other asset. I think the way Bitcoin goes from you know, $30,000 up to a million dollars is largely driven by high net worth individuals, the, the, the people that have a lot of resources in society, I think that you're going to have the third world embrace Bitcoin as well. 
but the average middle-class person in the United States is going to continue to miss Bitcoin until it's much, much higher. That's, that's my view. I think you're going to have sort of really diametrically opposed uh, people that are joining Bitcoin's network over the next uh, uh, you know, five to 10 years. You're going to have a bunch of people in really poor areas that say, this is something, this is much better uh, than our, the legacy system we've been handed to us by our native fiat currencies. And at the same time, you're going to have a bunch of people in really wealthy areas that say, this is for me. I'm going to try and buy up this asset. And in the middle, you have a bunch of people that just say, listen, I just want to Netflix and chill. I don't care about all this monetary bozo. Yeah, mumbo jumbo. It doesn't really matter until it does. Um, that's just generally how people change, right? People change when they need to change. And people in, in, at the highest levels, um, they're going to need to change because they want to preserve the, the wealth that they've worked really hard to achieve, the high net worth individuals. And then people at the lowest levels, um, they're going to say, I can't deal with this native fiat currency that's totally subjecting me to abject poverty. Um, so you have a weird sort of... Um, you know, uh, the dichotomy there that I think is going to move Bitcoin forward. Yeah, that makes sense. And to, to clarify, I think it will definitely happen. It's just a question of, of when, and I, it feels like we're in such unprecedented times. Um, even knowing that, you know, during the fall of the Roman empire, you know, you, you, we've talked about this a lot on clubhouse, right? You know, you, you just, nobody understood what was really happening or the majority of people didn't understand what was happening. Uh, so, some people certainly did, you know, and they just, you, you find all these letters of like, oh yeah, the number of bandits on the roads has increased. And this other random thing is, has increased, but, uh, I feel like we are in the, in that moment and in the same way that it is difficult for, uh, that it was difficult for people then to truly understand what was going on. I feel like, uh, it continues to be difficult now, even for, um, you know, someone like me to really track on the details. Yeah, the analogy I always use, and I think it's spot on, is, it, is imagine you're sitting at the Grand Canyon and you know that there's another side to the Grand Canyon, right? But to get to the other side, there's a pretty treacherous path in between, right? And I think that that is kind of where we're at with Bitcoin. I think we all know how this ends, but the middle, the middle part of it, it can get really treacherous. People can get knocked out. People can you know, be, I mean, I, I have built into my mo mental model Bitcoin's price to fluctuate wildly for the next five to 10 years. You just have, I literally say that I, I would, I can design a set of circumstances where if the economy falls off a cliff in the same exact month, same or same 12 month period, you could see Bitcoin crater down to, you know, 5K and then go up to 500K. And the reason for that is because of what the legacy system is doing around us. Bitcoin's just too small to stand independent of that at this point. Now you're going to, don't kill me over the number 5K to 500,000. The point is- I wrote it down, I'm trying, hold you to it. No, no. The point, what I'm trying to illustrate with that is that you have a system, okay? The legacy system that is incredibly weak. And in that really weak legacy system, Bitcoin is side seat to it. We're kind of just held hostage to what's going on in these broader markets. It won't always be that way, but for right now, we could be there. We could, we could have wild things happen with the price and just be prepared for that. Fair enough. What, uh, oh, Q, you open your mouth very well. I, I was going to flip the script to El Salvador stuff, unless you wanted to stay on macro. I just wanted to ask, um, what is the thing, Joe, when you're like, you know, deep asleep and you like wake up and you're like, ah, ah, and you're tossing in your, in your, in your, uh, you know, in your bed and your significant other turns over and it's like, Joe, Joe, it's okay. You're just having a nightmare. What is the thing that, uh, that you fear in your, in your heart of hearts um, related to Bitcoin? Yeah. Not just like normal life stuff. Yeah. Um, honestly, the thing I, I, I'm most afraid of when it comes to Bitcoin 
is that uh, I think that if the price gets really far ahead of itself in the short run, and we don't have the infrastructure set up, we don't have the uh, people to go out there uh, and advocate for Bitcoin, and we don't have the people that are willing to stick their neck out and support Bitcoin, we could be in a situation where Bitcoiners become political targets. And while I think we can overcome that, and I don't mean to scare anybody about this, but I do think if Bitcoin is wildly successful, which it has been, but I think people underestimate how successful it can be, Bitcoiners themselves can become political targets. And what, you know, by virtue of my day job, as which we haven't gotten into a little bit, but I, I'm a commercial litigator and, you know, fighting for, uh, I, I like to say I, I'm a commercial litigator supporting Bitcoin because I do think there will be fights ahead in the court system where we have to stand up for property rights. We have to stand up for sovereignty and everything that makes Bitcoin whole. If we don't have a team of people and an army of uh, advocates for Bitcoin, not for crypto guys, I don't care that there's a bunch of crypto lobbyists. That's irrelevant in my opinion. That does not help us. The fact that we had crypto, uh, you know, crypto advocates and crypto uh, lobbyists during the infrastructure bill, that's in many ways, it's detrimental to Bitcoin. I want there to be a Bitcoin ecosystem that's pro Bitcoin and pro freedom to be ready to stand if something wild happens with the legacy markets and all Bitcoiners now sitting on incredible amounts of wealth, because we will become political targets. And that, that's what keeps me up at night. I think we can overcome it. I think we can overcome everything. I think Bitcoin wins in the end, but that's not to say there can't be a rocky path in the interim. Uh, can I interject there real quick, Joe? I, I think that's yeah, really Chris. good stuff. So when you say by political targets, do you mean by like force or do you think that they'll people will be lobbying for us to support their political campaigns for clarification? Because I'm not saying multi-sig is a, a perfect solution, but like, let's just say, you know, you have a bunch of Bitcoin, but you have it in distributed locations with like, you know, a three of five multi-sig or some what you consider secure um, yet we joke the $5 wrench attack will become the 10 or a hundred dollar wrench attack with inflation. But like, do you see it as more of people won't understand that and attack us physically, or, or we will just be harassed to support political ambitions? I guess that's what I'm trying to clarify. I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think all of these things are possible on a spectrum. Um, given we're in the United States with a well-established rule of law, I think you can you can see more draconian policies put in place that are much more destructive than like, you know, much more likely than I think the, you know, we're going to jail Bitcoiners or we're going to force them to be uh, turn over all their Bitcoin. What I think you could see, for example, the host of things like maybe a different tax rate for when you're selling Bitcoin, extremely disadvantageous tax rate that could be put in place. Or the fact you can't hold your own Bitcoin. You can't take self-custody of it. You have to do it through a custodian. These things, I think, are on the table realities that you or a tax on proof of work mining. I mean, you can go on and on about anti-Bitcoin policies that uh, generally try to attack it at the margins. And I think the reason that they would take that route is because attacking something at the margins is generally more uh, uh, feasible and really, you know, hardcore regulation, hardcore attacks. Um, you know, the idea that everybody talks about 6102, I think that's very unlikely. I think that's, especially with Bitcoin, I don't think they'll ever go that route. Um, but I do think what they could do is they could do the custody thing. I mean, think about Wall Street, right? They have an incentive for why they would want you, want to hold your Bitcoin. And a law that would say, well, you can have Bitcoin all you want, you know, uh, plebs, but it has to be held with a certified, you know, reputable KYC custodian. You have to do that. Otherwise, uh, you're, you're committing a crime. Now, those things, I think, are unconstitutional. I would challenge them. I would be in court fighting them vigorously as a litigator. But I would tell you 
I do not discount the possibility of something like that occurring. And that's why I think like my earlier point, I want a Bitcoin community that's, you know, sticks together, that has each other's back. And we really have to divorce ourselves from the broader crypto movement. I don't think that's the pathway forward for Bitcoin. So I want to go down this rabbit hole with you, um, given your background and essentially your day job, if you will. Um, yeah. But first, I want you to just sort of just give your best definition of what is the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. I think crypto has nothing to do with Bitcoin, in my view. I think crypto is, uh, <laughs> that's the only way to define it, really. Bitcoin has unique attributes brought about by everything we, we study and preach and talk about all the time. The immaculate conception of Bitcoin, the nature of the network, the nature of the nodes that support it, the nature of the asset itself. All these things are uh, something that I don't think you can copy. Um, I think it's a unique creation for a unique moment in time, unique meaning one of a kind, and all these uh, derivatives and experimentation and innovation, whatever you want to call it, if you want to use it in favorable terms, none of them have proven to do anything useful. <laughs> That's my view. Bitcoin solves a real problem we've had for a millennia, if not longer, which is money. How do we have a, an incorruptible source of money? And I don't think anything else out there comes close to the raison d'etre of what Bitcoin is, the reason for Bitcoin's existence. All these other things I view as barnacles on the hull of the ship of Bitcoin. You have this huge, amazing creation, uh, this the Nakamoto innovation that was real. And then you have these things that leach onto it, that try to pose as it or, or survive off it, that, that drain liquidity from it. Um, it's like almost like parasites, right? That's the broader uh, crypto movement, as I said now. Now, does that mean there can never be anything innovative or positive coming from quote unquote crypto? I'm not going to go that far. I'm just saying, and everything I've ever seen at this point, I don't think I've ever uh, come close to identifying something that Bitcoin couldn't do if it needed to do it. Love that. Well said. Quit shit pointing in the chat. I see you idiots. Um, talk to us, Joe, now a little bit. You threw out some like very, very scary, but also very real possibilities of legislative efforts. I don't want to like play the speculative game, but maybe walk us through one of these scenarios of how it would come to pass. Like, where is this coming from through Congress and maybe who you're paying attention to that would be the vocal proponents of this anti-Bitcoin or more difficult, more difficult Bitcoin legislation, if you will. Yeah. So most of you that follow Bitcoin space already know their names. You know, you have the, the enemies of Bitcoin list, the, the Brad Shermans of the world, the Elizabeth Warrens, they're all out there and it's entirely expected and it's entirely anticipated. Um, you don't have a revolution in human history without there being pushback. There's always going to be pushback to somebody who's trying to change the game and Bitcoiners are trying to change the game. Um, so in that dynamic, you have to go on the full gamut of what is most likely, what is less likely. Um, and you kind of have to say, what can we do to try to prepare ourselves and, and, and uh, protect from what we know is coming? So from my perspective, I think that it's extraordinarily positive that we have at least a couple um, pro-Bitcoin senators. I think that um, I want to create, again, more folks that are not pro-crypto necessarily, but pro-Bitcoin because they are different. The problem with that is that one of the things that Wall Street and uh, many uh, other uh, powerful entities have uh, learned is that these other non-Bitcoin things, they can be co-opted. 
Uh, I was just tweeting about this this morning. Like Wall Street was interested in finding a new way to make money. They saw Bitcoin, but then they realized quickly that all these other crypto can be easily co-opted and controlled. So from my perspective, that is going to lead an army of lobbyists and army of influencers and political clout and money that's going to be pushing these things that are not Bitcoin. So the only way to protect us is we're, we're never going to beat them at that game because they're always going to have more money and resources. Our ability is to try to go out there and believe that the message of Bitcoin is one that can win over hearts and minds. I mean, I'm a big believer that being right makes might. And I think that if you are preaching how Bitcoin is different from all these things, you will have the rhetorical edge on all these other altcoiners, right? You have the best thing in the world, which is being right on the merits. And that's how we have to win. We have to win by being right on the merits. And that's not something you're going to be able to do. You're not going to be able to hire more lobbyists. You're not going to be able to hire more lawyers. Um, you know, as, as someone who I pride myself on trying to help Bitcoiners and people that are sued that are Bitcoiners, I, I can tell you that I have, there's, I could make way more money if I were catering specifically to non-Bitcoin projects, right? There's so much money out there outside of Bitcoin. The only thing I, I, I personally uh, am able to, um, you know, use to put my head against the pillow and, and, and take solace on at, at the end of the day is that I know I'm doing something that's not just about the financial return. It's also about what I believe is going to be a more just society. So I like to say like Bitcoiners are more, they're, they're not solely focused on the monetary gain. That's important. And Bitcoin fixes, you know, most things. I, I get all that. But you have to also be thinking about this is not just for you. This is for the broader movement of Bitcoin. 100%. I also just want to give you some serious props, Joe. We've known each other for what, maybe 18 months now? First met just yelling at, uh, yelling is such a strong term, discussing um, Bitcoin on Clubhouse. And I, I just, I, there are so many people in this space, myself included, who just spend a lot of time talking about Bitcoin. And I have always been, uh, I've always admired you for not only do you talk a lot about Bitcoin, but you also uh, take direct action. And you know, I uh, we did a lot of Twitter Spaces um, around the infrastructure bill um, because you had spent a lot of effort working with Lummis's team and um, you know other political groups to try to make sure that Bitcoin was fairly represented and fairly treated. And I. Um, I don't know if everyone who's listening knows that about you, but um, maybe if you could if you could speak to some of the work that you've done in that regard. In fairness, there's been a ton of people that have done a lot of work, and you know, to the extent I could lend my voice to certain causes or arguments or review things, I've tried to do that. I've tried to write about it and and speak to the you know the bar association and, and other um, you know normies, so to speak, about these things, which I think is really critical, right? Um, you can't just be in the echo chamber talking to the same people. You have to go take the argument out to the streets and take it to policymakers. I spoke with my congressman about this issue. I tried to plead with him. I tried to at least give him pause that he knows everything about Bitcoin just because he's read a couple articles and, you know, the Financial Times or elsewhere. Um, and that's what I think everybody can do. Um, and I am not unique. I'm not special in any way in that regard. I think there were thousands of Bitcoiners that try to speak out. And I think that will come again. And this will be something where uh, it's a, almost a recurring thing. As Bitcoin gains prominence, you're going to have to have more political involvement. I know there are people in Bitcoin that say, you know, screw that. I just want to go off and do my thing and I don't want to be involved. And that's fine. You can do that. I'm not saying don't do that. But to me, it's, it's sort of what is your goal here? Is your goal to 
protect, insulate the network, become, you know, like Michael Saylor says, a cyber hornet for Bitcoin? Or is your goal just to do your own thing? Either one's fine. I just prefer the cyber hornets. I prefer the people that are going to be out there advocating on behalf of Bitcoin. Yeah, 100%. I'm curious, Joe, your thoughts, because you, you kind of bring up the idea of let's get some pro-Bitcoin people into Congress, in D.C., helping to be in those rooms to make decisions. But I look at what just happened in New York, where you see someone like Mayor Adams, who originally announces they're going to take part of their sal- salary in Bitcoin. Then, oh, it's actually going to be Bitcoin and Ethereum, but I'm going to make New York the hub for crypto, Bitcoin, or whatever it is. And then the next thing you know, now New York State is passing through this legislation that it almost inhibits Bitcoin to really develop in a free market. I'm curious, like, why do we want to believe politicians this time? That this is going to be the issue that they're actually being genuine, they're being forthright, and they're going to follow through on the promises during the campaign that they're going to, they're going to follow through on those campaign promises. Yeah. Well, you don't believe them. That's the short answer. You, you operate from a standpoint of, you know, don't trust verify. And what you've seen with successful political groups uh, for decades now is that they don't trust the politicians, right? You stand from the, you stand, uh, you start with the premise that we're not going to trust you, that we're going to have to get you to commit we're going to have to follow up with you. This is a dialogue that's ongoing. And if you go off the beaten path, if you stray, we will remember that. And then there will be no sympathy for you moving forward. And a lot of successful activism, both on the left and the right, begins with this premise. I mean, if you're, whether you're, when you're running for office in the United States, for most major offices, one of the things that first, when you announce your candidacy, you get inundated with a survey, right? Emily's List sends out a survey, personal pack, a lot of these, you know, uh, you know, uh, pro-choice groups send out surveys and the NRA and, you know, the more tax uh, policies, uh, tax groups or uh, anti-tax groups, they all send out um, surveys as well. And they literally want you to commit on your policy issues. They make you sign on the dotted line saying, do you support this? Do you support this? Do you support this? And they get it in writing. Right? They don't get vague platitudes on a Twitter that I'm pro-crypto or pro-Bitcoin. They literally ask them the specifics, like, do you support you know, the right, uh, the constitutional right to take self-custody of your Bitcoin? I want those kind of questions to be asked to your elected representatives. Don't ask the vague you know, uh, you know, of people running for Congress, are you pro-Bitcoin? That tells you nothing. Ask the specifics. Are you in support of a de minimis tax exemption where if you spend Bitcoin under $500, you don't need to get taxed on it? That's the kind of things we, we need to get policymakers locked in on. So if they ever pivot later on, and they, they will, rest assured, they will always pivot. They will always flip-flop. That's the nature of politics because as you go up the food chain, you have to you know, change who you're trying to cater to. We can throw it back at them and saying, well, when you ran for Congress four years ago, you said you supported proof-of-work mining. Now you're running for higher office and you're, you're changing your tune. What happened? Were you, were you wrong then or are you wrong now? Like those sorts of things that literally putting people on the record are essential for the Bitcoin movement to have any sort of political clout. I've got a completely uh, different question, Q. I don't want to cut you off though. I'm curious, like you bring up someone like Brad Sherman, who is running against a pro-Bitcoin candidate like Erica Rhodes. I'm curious though about like this idea of being a single issue voter when it comes to Bitcoin then and blinding yourself to other stances or other sort of things that some of these politicians may also want to push forward, whether they believe it, or maybe it's because some of their other donors are telling them, this is what you also believe. 
Well, first of all, I, I don't think being a single issue voter on any issue is a smart strategy, right? Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to back the candidate that's like, well, I'm pro Bitcoin, but pro genocide. Like that's, that's not going to be my thing, right? Like <laughs> being a single issue voter is dumb. Um, what, what I think you need to look at more is like, you know, does, does this person's interest to the, the bulk of their interests align with the Bitcoin movement to the extent there is one? And also um, what is the alternative now with Erica? Okay. Do I think she would, even though I disagree with her on many issues, do I think she would be a better alternative than Brad Sherman? hundred percent. It's not even close um, on many issues. You know, she would be similar to him, I think, but net net, she's a preferable alternative in my mind. So while I disagree with her on many things, I don't see anything that would be so much of a disagreement that would be a deal breaker. But, but to your point, like, I think the notion of single issue Bitcoin voters kind of a, it's, it's not a good way to frame the issue. Okay. I've talked enough about politicians and politics on a Monday P I will cede the mic over to you. Finally. Uh, two questions. Actually, I've got, I've got a whole bunch. Uh, one, Joe, um, one of the things we've been talking about a lot recently in this specific um, Bitcoin Magazine Live is um, some of the issues around nutrition. There's been a lot of stuff happening recently, you know, talking about shortages in, um, in baby formula, things like that. So I got to ask, are you pro or against insect milk as a um, source of nutrition? Uh, as long as it doesn't take a lot of my Bitcoin, I'm good with it. I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> Ooh. Great answer. Great answer. Um, I'm, I'm obviously he hasn't had a conversation with a human being outside of Bitcoin magazine. So you're actually the first Joe. So I apologize. He's still working on some things. It's okay. No worries. No, Joe and I go way back. He's, he used to go into the Mensa rooms on, you know, we, we've had many conversations about this. We talked about almond milk, the pros and the cons, how you have to milk almonds, their little almond teats. You know, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I, I um, got to go tell you, I listen to a lot of boring, boring podcasts about the bond market and the euro dollar system and, and, and very, very mundane stuff. But uh, my brain has never hurt as hard as, as leaving a Mensa room. Like when I go into those Mensa rooms, I'm like, oh my God, is this because it because he always tricks you into thinking it might be real like somehow it like he lulls you into this sense of security where you think this might actually be legitimate someone might be listening and thinking this is true you you have you there's nothing you could have said that would have been a uh, a higher compliment because uh, you're one of the <laughs> smartest people i know so yes um and just for everyone else uh we used to do these rooms that were like these improv uh insane rooms uh called mensa rooms uh that uh were just we would debate debate just totally insane premises like uh, you know, dirty globe earthers versus flat earth truthers and all sorts of stuff like that. Anyway. Um, all right. All joking aside. Actually, no, I'm not done with that yet. What is your favorite conspiracy theory? Like the most insane, like out there thing that, that someone truly believes that you just don't understand how somebody could. I don't know if someone truly believes it, but I was watching a 60 minutes. It was like a whole, check it out. It's hilarious. Uh, the 60 minutes on birds aren't real. I think that's genius. Absolute genius. The guy who came up with this. Yes. Um, He's so totally funny. He's, He's hilarious. So funny. It, 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 but, but, but my understanding is there, there were some people that actually believed it for a little bit. Like, which oh, I'm sure. Is crazy. This is crazy. Dude, I think 60 Minutes believed it. Like, it wasn't until halfway through that they were like, oh, he's just really funny. Okay. Someone, someone at CBS watched that and was like, oh, my God. 
yeah, it was it was amazing. But you know, there's a lot of that uh, going on the truthiness concept, right? So yep, yeah, that's a fantastic uh, interview. If if uh, y'all haven't seen it, it's it's truly amazing. She asked him at one point, like, you know, he's he's bashing on like news media and like the lies that news media perpetrates and everything, and she's like, well, you're talking to me right now. Like, how do you feel about sixty minutes? And he's like, look, I mean, talking about time minutes it's all good like <laughs> you just burst out laughing um okay so i so putting that aside the conspiracy truths um as i like to call them tell me about the the work that you're doing with rob and becca i i'm super interested to hear to learn more about it um you guys are one of the one of the, the groups that is producing, that has found a niche in the Bitcoin ecosystem um, that is not currently served. And I think that is a, that's a super interesting thing. I think there's a lot of people that are trying to do that. And I'm, I'm super impressed that you guys have successfully isolated one. So t- tell us all about what that is and what you guys are trying to do. Uh, yes. So uh, Rob Hamilton uh, has founded a company called Anchor Watch. And the idea behind it is uh, Bitcoin self-custody insurance and other insurance solutions. So it's very much in its early days. There's a huge regulatory uh, moat that you have to get around, which we're working on. So uh, more to that, more of that will be on its way. More information is going to be on that way. But uh, effectively, um, I come from a background as a commercial litigator uh, and also as an insurance service advisor, where in my day-to-day job, I I advise uh, uh, numerous um, insurance companies how to navigate regulatory environments. And I, uh, from discussions um, in that space, I realized that custody solutions, insurance solutions for Bitcoin are uh, very difficult for many customers, for many individuals, for many companies. Uh, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to put forward a, more of a, a, a comprehensive package for people and for people that want to take physical custody of their Bitcoin at the same time when they're taking self-custody, they have a lot of anxiety and a lot of nerves and a lot of things they have to overcome. And if we want, you know, the, the, the amount of hodlers to, you know, uh, to uh, increase tenfold over the next five years, they're going to be people that say, listen. I get it. I want a self-custody, but I'm just nervous. I just don't know how to do it. What if I do something wrong? What if I get robbed? What if I have a catastrophic loss? And our goal is to try to fill in some gaps and help people cross the Rubicon and then get fully orange-pilled. You know, my goal is for people to be able to feel comfort and peace of mind when they're taking self-custody and also companies too. So um, I can't go into too many more details on it, but that's the general premise, right? Like, yes, most of the people right now, you had to go through that nerve wracking experience of when you send a transaction, something may go wrong. I may put in the wrong address. I may have a technical glitch. My cold card might catch on fire, all these different things. Our goal is to try to mitigate against some of that stuff. Well, I'm super excited to learn more about yeah, it. Yeah, you'll, you'll be hearing more. It's The company, again, is called Anchor Watch and uh, follow Rob Hamilton on Twitter. And I know a bunch of the people that that are, you know, super well-respected in the community are also like super excited about it. And so I'm excited to, you know, hopefully have some more conversations about it. Ideally here. Yeah, yeah we will. We will absolutely will. And, uh, you know, this is the, this is where we go to, the, you know, the next uh, next threshold of people coming into Bitcoin. The next frontier of Bitcoin is we you start to have products, services that make it really easy. And if you're out there, like, listen, we're, we, we need ways to take care of your Bitcoin. We need more options for people that want to integrate Bitcoin into their businesses. There's so many different opportunities right now 
that in addition to just buying and holding Bitcoin, right? This is a whole industry that needs development. And I guarantee you, you know, Jack Mallers is, can't do it all on his, his own, right? He needs other people out there to make us uh, more robust uh, as a market. Yeah, I guess not <laughs> uh, on the other extreme, you've got like people like, uh, you know, Jameson Lop, who, you know, is like, there's, he's got these amazing write-ups of like all of the hardware or all of the, uh, the seed plate tests that he's done, you know, where he like dips them in acid and sets them on fire and hits them with a hammer and stuff. And the reality is um, 99.99999% of people do not have the time or the interest in, uh, in doing all those tests. So I, I'm super excited for systems like what you guys are doing that'll uh, help people learn more and then be able to more safely uh, take custody of their own stuff. Absolutely. Cool. Back to you, my guy. Thank you, Pete. Um, Joe, I know we're winding down on our time. Um, curious, is there a book that you either read recently or you're currently reading that you're obsessed with or want to share? Uh, what was the, the so the book? It's escaping me. The, uh, the there's a recent book on the Fed Federal Reserve that I just finished, and of course, you would give me one second. I will pull up the name of it. It's 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 good. I recommend. Oh, there it is. The Lords of Easy Money. Um, it's an audible as well. I actually, uh, full disclosure, listened to the audible of it. But the Lords of Easy Money, uh, very good take on the Federal Reserve. Um, a couple of things I disagree with it on it, but that's there's no book I read where I don't have a few things I take a little bit of issue with. That that's the only way I can listen to all of them. Just try to say, well, where do you disagree from what's being put forward in the book? But highly recommend the Lords of Easy Money. It's came out in January of this year. It's by Christopher Leonard. Um, that's a good one. So that's my pitch of the day. Awesome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. Uh, I want to give you the chance to maybe share where our audience can stay up to date with you. I know we were sharing your Twitter handle, but if you got anything else uh, that you're cooking up that people should keep an eye out for. Um, no, Twitter's uh, probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Um, again, I'm going to plug again, listen to the excellent roundtable uh, that's going to premiere, I think, tomorrow on the Investors Podcast. Uh, it's going to be great. Um, and also, if you have a litigated dispute and you are a Bitcoiner or a Bitcoin company, or I represent a bunch of different Bitcoin miners, that's my day job. About a third of my cases right now are somehow related to Bitcoin. Uh, so please, you know, reach out to me through my law firm, Smith Amundsen. I'd love to represent Bitcoiners. I really believe it. It's more than just trying to, you know, have, have a day job. I actually do believe in helping Bitcoiners. So um, I really, any litigated disputes, you're being sued, you need to sue someone, someone cheated you out of your Bitcoin, um, reach out to me through my official channels with the law firm and we can chat. Uh, no fee to just chat with me about a dispute. And if I can't help you, I'll point you in the direction of someone that might be able to. So what is the chart behind you? Uh, this is um, the Bitcoin chart and uh, it's from uh, pretty much the, ins I think it's become, it goes back to 2014. And uh, I, I, my wife actually made it. She was just fooling around with some art stuff and it was really cool. Uh, shows sort of the, the long trend, which I, I use this to sort of keep a, a just perspective. You have this long trend here where it looks like there's nothing but sideways action. Now in here, if you zoomed in, you see a bunch of, you know, crazy movement of the price, but you don't, it's just all seems flat, right? And then you have this big spike of 2017. And then the other spike, I think this is the, uh, you can't probably see it at the end. This is the 20 July of 2019 spike. Uh, I use it for perspective because I think it kind of shows that in the long run, 
a lot of this day-to-day -day price movement is going to just blend. It's going to look like a flat line when we're cruising north of $500,000, $600,000 Bitcoin. The fact that people are going to say, oh, you bought it at 36 versus 34, nobody's going to care. It's going to be <laughs> irrelevant, right? Like, who cares? It's all a rounding error, as yeah. Greg Boss would say. Exactly. Yeah. He's right. Good stuff. And for those of you rounding error, when I did the math last over the weekend of like, if I cash out my bonus when we've gotten it, and then just re-put it into the market right then and there. I know smooth brain aspects of me are coming out right now. I get it. For those of you who are messaging me, no, you cannot actually milk almonds, nor can you milk insects. They do not have teats. That's uh, a bit. There aren't, you can't get insect milk. If you figure it out, let me know. I'll buy it from you for some Bitcoin. Keep tuning in because this is a, a recurring bit for P to push his insect agenda and food onto me. If you appear on the show enough times, you have to change your name into a letter. Do I need to be J or something? Is that a rule? Yes. How does Chris have his real name? I don't get it. They're, they're, I was here first. You know, I'm the producer. So they're still trying to convert my name to C. So we'll see. You should do it. You got to sell the extra letters and convert it into Bitcoin. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're short Bitcoin. You're short Bitcoin if you don't sell your name. Right. <laughs> Joe, next time we have you on, you'll be J. But I'm thank on. you so much for com coming on, man. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, guys, this was great. Make sure you're following him. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it, and we'll we will chat soon. Bye.